Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at the IC. And joining me today are Peter Elston, Chief Investment Officer at Seneca Investment Management. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Hi. Good, thanks, Taha. Good to be here. Uh, and David Baxter, Deputy Editor of Money Management and Asset Allocator to uh, fellow FT Specialist Titles. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Hi. Not bad, thanks. Welcome to the, uh, welcome to the IC Thank Podcast you. for the first time. Thank you. Good to be here. It's, uh, it's been an interesting week, I think. Um, not interesting in the sense if you've got equity holdings because all the markets have been down over the past seven days. But I suppose Brexit has been the the biggest thing as driving the news agenda, as it was the week before and the week before that and the week before that. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because we're, we're coming to a we're coming to a pass here where which really matters for investors. I feel anyway next week when we have the vote, we'll, we'll talk about the probability of mm. uh, what happens with the vote. But just on my basic political understanding, it sounds like it's not going to pass. But what I do think is interesting from that is what that means for for stocks because I've been, I was reading that some Goldman stats that they say if the deal fails, well, if the deal passes, which is unlikely, but which is unlikely, <laughs> let's, just, let's, just, let's just assume it might, it might for a second, there'll be a five percent rise in sterling, which is quite a big rise for one day. But obviously, this is the main thing that's been depressing it, and that'd be quite good for domestic stocks, less so for FTSE 100 but probably still good generally anyway um but yeah peter what do you what do you Mm, think about this it sounds mm. like as if at this point sterling is going to be dictating the most of the returns that investors are going to be experiencing Mm. i suppose first off people who love probability trees must be having a a field day (laughs) at at the moment Uh, i mean it's such a it's such an interesting situation this in in terms of all of the the various uh permutations whether you're looking at uh a vote uh, against the deal um, on the uh, the 11th of December, uh, whether you're looking at a, a major defeat, whether you're looking at a, a, a not so ma- major of defeat, all of those probabilities are continually uh, changing. Then you look at what the implications are of, of each of those different scenarios and you then have a number of other different permutations and, and it just makes it incredibly difficult as an investor to try to uh, position portfolios uh, according to you know the various uh, permutations out there i mean if i might just go back to 2016 which um, i think is is quite instructive in terms of what might be a a better way of thinking about brexit um back then our uh, portfolio positioning, uh, we hadn't really changed any positioning in relation to, to Brexit. We had uh, quite a, a large chunk of our portfolios in UK mid-caps. We didn't hold any uh, gilts or other uh, developed market government bonds, thinking that uh, they were horribly expensive, which they were. And we also didn't have much um, foreign exchange exposure. Uh, again, thinking that that uh, over time just uh, gives you a lot of risk, but not much in the way of return. Now, in the days following that referendum vote, all of those three positions went against us. Yeah. Uh, Mid caps fell sharply. Uh, sterling fell. So, uh, you know, in relation to our peers who had quite a lot of uh, FX exposure, our funds didn't do so well. And of course, government bonds rose sharply. So our funds. Uh, plummeted down the the peer group rankings on a very short-term basis. However, since then, uh, or following that initial period, they've done very well because, of course, you know, once the dust settles, you you realise that actually these mid-cap companies are pretty good and 
people realise that government bonds are very expensive and, and also sterling starts to, to, to settle down or, or indeed rise again as it, as it did. So the point is uh, that actually, um, you, you know, if you stick to the fundamentals of buying good companies, believing that government bonds are expensive, which they are, uh, believing that foreign exchange exposure is, is actually a, a bad idea, then you'll be okay. But trying to trying to sort of protect yourself against every eventuality is just extremely hard. You just can't do it. And I think being a good fund manager, being a good investor, you, is all about accepting risks. You, you, you know, what's the alternative? The alternative is to to stay at, uh, at home all day, not get out of bed, um, because you're just so worried about all of the different risks. You can't you can't do that. Accept that there's going to be volatility, but. St- stick to stick to fundamentals and and, and you should be okay no so good, good advice going into going into next week definitely especially we just generally don't know what's going to happen we don't know how <laughs> no. the markets are going to react at all do we absolutely utter madness like um yeah i mean, just one theory as well again um i fully appreciate your point but there'll be a, a a short rally if the deal fails just because of the low probability of no deal Mm-hmm. Um, based on the the amendments that we've seen in Parliament this week, so there's so many moving parts. But yeah, I suppose yeah, do one or two things: listen to Peter or shut the curtains. Um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> um, what else we've seen this week? It's interesting. We've got some statistics from the Investment Association this week as well. We mentioned these a couple of months ago in this podcast. The statistics tell us what funds have been bought and sold uh, in this case over the course of October. And it's interesting because it kind of demonstrates, um, I suppose, what other investors are doing, professional and uh, private investors alike. October was, uh, as, as you may remember, as I'm sure your ISIS certainly <laughs> do, not the best of months. But it's, it's interesting that the stats have come out and showed us. It's not been as clear a picture as it seems, does it, Dave? No, so it's been a mix. Yeah, obviously, as it's now known, Red October, if we're going to stick with that uh, that term. I'd rather not, um, okay. you've said it now, okay. so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Set the precedent. Um it uh, yeah it was a very difficult time for markets. Um, all asset classes were down. Uh, a lot of that was to do with the fact that rates are slowly starting to rise. Um, so as you'd expect, uh, bond funds sold off very heavily, 1.6 billion uh, net outflows, um, and equity sales were uh, positive but very modest. But what's interesting is if you break down some of the best-selling groups. Um, so on the one hand, uh, you've had some people buying money market funds, going into cash. Um, and Which I suppose makes sense if you're selling out of bond funds and you're looking for protection, uh, I imagine. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. And uh, if, as we've discussed, people are just closing the curtains, they just want no risk, then that makes sense. Um, but I suppose that's the kind of ultimate safety play. Um, but then you've seen some more nuanced decisions. So some people, for example, have been buying global equity funds, um, which just they may be uh, buying the dip, thinking this is just a short term overreaction by the markets. I still think, you know, things may go up in future, so I'm going to get a bit more exposure. Similarly, people have been taking um, more mixed kind of multi-asset plays, um, but these still involve uh, potentially fairly high exposure to equities um so they're taking a step back but they're still looking to uh, participate in potential equity market rises uh, which i suppose for the last couple of years has been the big debates you know do i think markets are going to crash or and do i step out or really dial back my exposure 
or do I think now I this is too much opportunity cost? I need to be in there still. So this is interesting because it. Um well, two things. What we can't see from the stats is whether all the selling happened in the first two weeks, and then, yeah, as, yeah, as you yeah. said, everyone went, "Okay, this is now overdone." And then all the all the sales we've seen have been in the second two weeks from different people with dry powder on the sidelines and stuff like that. Um, but I suppose the other thing is whether people realised mid October whether this was a fundamental correction or evaluation driven correction. Was this because people were worried about recession, or was this people were worried mm. about uh, tech stocks? Um, how did you what was your take on october mm. well it, that, that's absolutely right uh, the big question uh is what did october represent did it represent the start of something prolonged and pronounced i.e the next bear market because bear markets are like death and taxes they're guaranteed to happen uh, or was it simply a, a correction that um followed a few months of quite unusual behavior uh, you know the the rise in markets had been focused purely on on the U.S. since April, uh, and then uh, within the U.S. it was really just a very small number of tech stocks that had been driving the rally, and that was totally unsustainable. and uh, And it may well have been that markets woke up in October and realised just how unsustainable that sort of behaviour was, and there was a a, a, a correction. I uh, think, for what it's worth, that. Um, October represented uh, a, a correction on the, the simple basis that you look across the world and monetary policy is still extremely loose. Uh, even in the US, where um, you've seen interest rate rises for the last, well, since I think it was December 2014, might be wrong by a year or so, 15, okay. Monetary policy is still very loose in in, uh, in the US, or at least it's moved from being accommodative uh, to, to neutral. Elsewhere in the world, it's, it's still extremely loose. And that provides quite a supportive backdrop to, to equities. Um, uh, and and whilst I'd, I think we probably are entering the stage of the cycle where you know, returns from equities are are falling. I don't think we've quite yet got the uh, the, the factors in place, the backdrop in place for uh, the start of a, a bear market. So what lies ahead? Probably quite a lot more volatility, but we should still see uh, over, you know, the course of the next year or two reasonably positive returns okay no, that, 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 so i was um i was just going to be my next point so the reason why i think and as a, me and david chatting about this earlier as well that the ia statistics for october are important is because it tells us what happened in that month and i suppose it helps us decide well not decide but decipher what might happen in future so are we what are we looking at next year then is it going to be something of the case of where we have these kind of okay I suppose UK equities aside, because you've got the political influence there that we can't just can't decide. Are we going to have these kind of steady rises and then massive falls and steady rises and massive falls and steady rises and massive falls? Is that just what we have to accept coming into 2019? I, I think it, it probably is. Um, uh, you know, this is this is a, a reflection of what you tend to to get in the the sort of the late stages of of a cycle. Uh, when monetary policy uh, is is being tightened, um, when valuations are starting to get a little bit stretched, um, you are naturally going to see these um, 
periods like October when uh, when there are, you know you do get some quite nasty to nasty falls. So I think it probably is what we've got to look forward to. Okay. And Peter, you mentioned the uh, narrowing of those stocks um, and regions, obviously that have driven performance. Um, so since summer, you've seen global equities really decouple from the US, and the US has been uh, doing well until around October, um, whereas the rest really hasn't. And then those falls have been more focused on fangs in the US. Um, is that something you would expect to sort of maintain or even um, increase? Um, well, you know, you take the fangs out of the US uh, market and actually the US, the rest of the US hasn't been doing that well either this year. Um, so, you know, this question of whether uh, whether the... The, the performance of the fangs can continue mm. is is a uh, is a difficult one. I mean, they're, it's they're very very hard to to value these stocks because um, uh, you know all, a lot of the the growth in in the fangs is uh, ahead of us rather than in in the present. So it's very hard to, to value that. Just just going to jump in and, and let everyone know that fangs are the the text oh. Facebook, <laughs> Amazon, Apple, uh, Netflix, and Google. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Um, so, look, I think there's all sorts of headwinds that those stocks face. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, increasingly, uh, people are talking about trying to regulate them more. Uh, increasingly, um, uh, you know, people are, are sort of aware of some of the, the sort of the negative things associated with those companies. So I think they probably are entering a more a more difficult period. But it's, it's, it's quite hard to say. What we try to do at, at Seneca is to um, understand where monetary policy is is going to to go and and to to guide us there what we're looking at are our inflation pressures and to guide us there what we're looking at is uh unemployment and um unemployment now across the world is is extremely low mm. um it's at a four decade low uh in the US and the UK unemployment is at a, a 50 year low and what does this mean well it means that um uh, labor markets are extremely tight it means that wage pressures are are growing and wage pressures will feed through to inflation and central banks don't like inflation that's too high and when that starts Mm. to happen they want to 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 take the punch bowl away and taking the punch bowl away you you're removing support for uh for so-called risky assets like equities etc um that's what we try to focus on. It's never going to tell you what markets are going to do over periods of one, two months, but what we think is it'll it'll give us a good guide to how things might pan out over the next one, two years. And uh, if you can do that, you can add value through uh, an asset allocation framework. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Speaking of asset allocation, it was quite interesting. So last week we had Chris Dillow, the uh, IC economist, uh, on the show. He was talking about... Um, the yield curve uh, and when it inverts that tends to be a long t- longer term sign of recession and therefore that should be uh, a good sign of when to start reducing your equity allocation and he was talking in the context of the fact that the US yield curve was still was still positive um, so therefore you know equity markets would, would deem to to go higher um, this week they started to invert um, mm. and, 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 and in this very bizarre set of circumstances um, what does that what does that tell us what does it, uh, Dave, mm. do, you have, do you have any thoughts on this so obviously it's um, well not obviously but it's, it's viewed <laughs> as a uh, um, a very reliable indicator of um, future recessions um, depending on how you measure it um, it's been a, a good indicator uh, I think for every recession mm. since World War Two I was reading mm. 
Eight of them, I think. Oh, eight. Eight recessions, yes, and they've yes. all been uh, preceded by uh, a yield curve inversion. And not only that, but um, you know, it's never given a false reading, so it, it has been... Yeah. So, a pretty reliable indicator. So there are lots of those kind of potentially flashing lights you can look at in times like this, and this is perhaps one to pay more attention to. Um, and just to explain a bit more, um, it's when the uh, lower end is yielding more than the... So the shorter-dated bonds. Are, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because normally you would expect to um, want a government to pay you more, to borrow for longer, because there's more risk. So that's quite unusual. Um, and a lot of people regard it as a sign that um, central banks are tightening monetary policy too quickly. Mm. Um, although I did see, um, obviously, a lot of insights come from Twitter nowadays. Um, <laughs> it's where I get all my information. Yeah, yeah everything. Um, I was just reading something today where someone was making the point that um, maybe the curve inversion is being more widely discussed this time than previous times. So does that... So make it a false positive, I suppose. Yeah, does, does that mean well, that... It, it, it introduces a self-fulfilling element, yeah. thing, doesn't yeah. it? You know, if people are thinking it means something, then yeah, then it will, because you'll get a, a recession being caused by people becoming... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Purely based on the yield curve. I'm sure, I'm sure we're helping that by talking about it on this show. <laughs> yeah. I suppose that's a good time as I need to move on, so don't, don't, don't listen to us on the yield curve, because we, we don't know. OK, let's turn to some funds news this week. Magazine, we talk about a, a consultation from the Investment Association about including ETFs in their sectors. Um, so sectors, uh, as listeners may be aware, are groupings of funds that are similar, so you can compare one fund to another and make sure you're finding the best strategy in a, or the best fund in a specific strategy like UK equity income or European equities, etc. The IA at the moment only includes open-ended funds. Uh, they, they can be active and passive, but they, they tend to be open-ended. Well, they are open-ended. And they're, they're thinking about including ETFs, which is, is quite unusual because mm. they are two different types of fund structures. They, they tend not to be... What's, what, well, I don't know, Dave, what, what's, what's, your, what's the argument here? For, for me, it seems unusual, but they... If, if funds are doing the same thing, then why shouldn't they be compared at the same time? And what's your thoughts on this consultation? Yeah, I mean, really an ETF versus an open-ended fund is just a, a structure. But you yeah. can still potentially do the same things. So if you have an open-ended tracker fund, you could track, say, the FTSE 100. And with a ETF, you could do exactly the same thing. Um, main difference is ETF is more easily tradable and you can exploit you know, differences in... Priding, uh, pricing, sorry. There's a, there's a wonderful feature in IC from a few months ago explaining <laughs> the difference between uh, open-ended passive funds and ETFs just as a... Yeah, on the one hand, this could be a really good thing because um, it just allows more transparency, which is always good for the industry. Uh, it allows investors to compare and contrast um, so you can see not just different passives versus each other, um, focusing on the same area, but you can see them versus active. So you could look at, say... US equity funds and see that I imagine you'd see that um, only a few funds manage to beat those ETFs and passive funds and that could inform your decisions either of what active funds you pick or whether you go passive uh, so that's a good thing um, although it's worth mentioning one criticism and that is that um, basically by including ETFs you're just going to get a load of very similar funds they're going to cluster around the same point in terms of performance, and it's just going to confuse investors too much. That's what I mean, because there's already, I mean, the IA sectors, there's 37 sectors, yeah, um, yeah. and they have close to 4,000 funds. And they're talking, 
about is it about 200 ETFs? 200, 200 yeah. So I suppose in the grand scheme of things, it's not a significant amount, but a lot of these ETFs um, all do the the same thing. You know, there are, there are more than a handful of FTSE 100 ETFs, or FTSE All Share, FTSE 250, mm. S&P 500, uh, Stocks 50 for European equities. So just the... I'm thinking about the, the UK oil company sector, which I suppose is the one that's used the most to, to find the best active UK equity funds. You've just got this influx of passive yeah, yeah. UK trackers, and they're all going to be sitting about say around the same thing and then it's just making it harder to find the best active fund is it not possibly i mean that that is a, a valid argument um but like you say i mean it's only 200 ish funds if you average that out over 37 sectors what are you getting like an average of six or seven per yeah per sector so is that really gonna quick math then, got... <laughs> <laughs> pre-done math uh, <laughs> the best kind I guess one point that's interesting to make is performance isn't always as similar as you might expect. Um, So first of all, on the pure passive front, if you look at um, global trackers or EM trackers, um, different providers like FTSE and MSCI will include different countries and give different countries different weightings. So over a decent time period, you can see a reasonable divergence in performance. So maybe it is worth kind of highlighting um, those differences. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Another thing that's interesting to look at, um, I imagine being it's only 200 ETFs, this would be uh, some of your more conventional passive strategies. So yeah, your big indices like we just talked about. Exactly, like your bog standard kind of equity tracker. Um, But it could open the door to maybe at some point in future including so-called smart beta where you focus on on a factor so Mm -hmm. you might have an etf for example uh that buys um stocks in the FTSE 100 that yield say three and a half percent or more so yeah smart beta i suppose is technically it's a passive fund but that doesn't weight according to traditional market caps it doesn't just buy more of the biggest stocks it actually decides it's weighting based on a different criteria is that that, Yeah, yeah yeah normally um or quite often it will use its own kind of um, self-crafted index, um, and that will differ from the conventional index. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the biggest sectors, or well, the biggest sector in the IA uh, sectors is UK equity income. Mm. And there are plenty of these smart beta ETFs, as, as you mentioned, that focus on yeah. on kind of high-yielding stocks, and they have different ways of calculating to make sure that investors get the most income. So how does that... Um, how does this, let's say you've got all these kind of smart beta equity income ETFs coming into the IA UK equity income sector. Yeah. What what what, what are the pros and cons of that? I suppose it's a good thing because you can see which active funds are doing best, but yeah. is, there any, is there any issues with that one? I mean, it, it's great on the one hand because um, uh, sometimes arguments have been made that active managers rely more on uh, style or kind of broader decisions rather than stock picking. And with um, smart beta you might be able to see this a bit more clearly. So if if there's a style and it's outperforming or performing very similarly to a lot of active managers, then um, you can see that those active managers may be more reliant on... On, on market style, market factors. Yeah, rather than, rather than yeah. kind of, you know, magical stock picking um, finesse. It's almost as if you're a bit sceptical. <laughs> no, no, not so, not so. Um, but I suppose I, you, you might think that as, a, as an active manager... Um, I'd be a an opponent of of passive funds and, and ETFs and, mm. and, a, and a move like 
this, but uh, actually that's that's not the case. I mm. I think that uh, passive funds, uh, ETFs, make a, a huge amount of sense for people who um, maybe don't have the the wherewithal, or the all the time, or the inclination to to look at active funds uh, and and try to you know identify um, some of the better active funds. It does it does make sense for for them to. Uh, to to go into passive funds, so I I'm actually very supportive mm. of this. I think the more that uh, people are more transparency that there is, the more people are able to to compare funds, whether it's uh, within passive funds. I mean, Dave, you mentioned that different passive funds, say the US, contract different indices. There are also more uh, nuanced differences as well in relation to how these passive funds or ETFs are trying to um, uh, get exposure. Whether they, whether they are using uh, synthetic exposure or, or getting actual exposure mm. to underlying stocks, those can cause differences in performance. Um, costs can cause a difference. But the more I think the more ability there is for people to compare and contrast, uh, the better. Sure. Yeah. yeah, one thing I think there's uh, synthetic is a quite a good point. Um, so one thing the IA aren't doing is going to put any synthetic ETFs in this as well. So but again, that, I actually see that as a downside because synthetic ETFs are complex, but they, they do have their place in the in the industry and they're not including them in the IA sectors is basically favoring one over the other. Mm, mm. I, I feel and it's a personal mm. thought. Although is, are, they, are they just trying to protect investors there? So if you if you're doing something slightly more esoteric and that's really influencing your returns one way or another i suppose but yeah but like the synthetic FTSE 100s like Lixor have a couple of, of very mm. low charging synthetic FTSE 100s but again i suppose in the ic top 50 we don't include synthetic etfs so we've, we've already made that decision as well so yeah yeah i, I stand down my point <laughs> having having just remembered that criteria for the ic top 50 oh yeah other news this week uh came from kames who um mm. i think they have some bond managers left um <laughs> So yeah, Keynes are uh, Keynes Capital, part of Aegon, um, have some some decent funds. Um, they were well known for their fixed income funds. Actually, they, they were quite popular. Uh, but then last year, two their two most senior fixed income fund managers left to join Lion Trust, uh, leaving um, behind a, a very a, a, quite a strong team. But then something else has happened, hasn't it, Dave? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit uh, moments of deja vu, I guess. Um, <laughs> So they're just, they're just recovering from uh, back, like you say, in, in summer 2017. Replaced their old co-heads of fixed income. So this is David Robertson, Phil Milburn. Yes, they they were the guys who left for Line Trust that you mentioned, um, and now Stephen Snowden, another um, quite well-known, well-respected Kames bond manager, and three of his colleagues have departed to go to uh, Artemis, um, which. Uh, I yeah. suppose it's yeah. can the last bond manager at Keynes turn the lights off. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, the funds affected are the invest the Keynes Investment Grade Bond Fund and yeah. the Keynes High Yield Bond Fund, along with some of their absolute return uh, bond funds, uh, but they're not available on the DTC platforms. Fund manager departures is a is a part and parcel of, of fund buying, I suppose. Yeah. But the situation seems slightly different, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean. Who was it? it was Morningstar in their ratings were basically talking about um, they used the term highly volatile when they talked about the stability of the or high stability, I think, of, yeah. of the team. Um, More something uh, akin to an asset class rather than team, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, basically sterling in a couple of months. Um, so, I mean, you, you can argue that um, maybe the processes will stay the same and 
they can they are replacing them uh but when people are moving around that much it will really give you pause for thoughts and you will think you know do i want to kind of step back see what's going to happen with these funds uh see whether the new team sort of comes together quite well how they work together so it is worth taking a look at that although what's interesting we were looking at this for asset allocator with regard to uh, dfms and what dfms use so discretionary uh, discretionary fund managers so um, basically professional investors what they were doing with regard to these funds and some of the affected funds no one holds them because i assume because last year they already the team left Yeah. yeah It's not. It's not a great week, not is great. it? No, no, it's not. Uh, it's worth noting as well that um, anyone that did hold these funds on rating has suspended them based on these departures, which again is supposed relatively common, but not always that common. Sometimes they mm. they say they're, they're under review. Um, oh, while well, we meet the team, but in this case, it just seems that no, we're now taking these ratings it. away yeah. <laughs> uh, because you've lost your entire team. Anyway, if you do hold those funds, um, see, so never suggesting you sell, but certainly a lookout. Uh, for how what if anything changes on those in that area okay so that's uh, that yeah that was the funds news you can read more on uh, the ia etf consultation and games in the magazine this week uh, you can also read more on the smart beat on smart beta funds as well turning to asset allocation which is probably going to be the most it's, it's the kind of time of year where everyone's thinking about how their portfolio is structured uh, and what they should be doing it's just it seems to be a gregorian driven phenomenon um that you, something you do at the start at the end of the year peter we, we've sat down and discussed asset allocation many times in the past what what are your what are your thoughts now so I, I, for context should we have a, a, a kind of brief explanation mm. on, on i suppose you you alluded to your your monetary yeah. policy driven yeah. um asset allocation model that you operate mm-hmm. so where how is so where's that taken us from let's say june 2017 to now what have you been doing in your multi-asset portfolio sure yeah well if i may just um set out uh, a, a little bit about our, our framework that, that we use. Um, so, you know, the reality is that um, markets go up and down uh, in fairly recognisable patterns. Obviously, the terms, mm. you know, equity bull market and equity bear market are, are very well understood. Um, you get the same sorts of patterns in in bonds uh, other um, other assets commodities etc and I think the key question with asset allocation is are those cycles predictable if they're not predictable then there's no point in trying to predict them and and have some sort of uh, active asset allocation framework uh, you might as well just have a, a passive approach and and just stick with a certain percentage in in various uh, different asset classes, equities, bonds, etc. However, in in my view, in our view, and um, in the view of many other uh, sort of respected academics, a lot of these cycles are predictable. You can actually predict, um, not with one hundred percent accuracy, but the key is you don't need. 100% accuracy, you just need some accuracy. You can actually predict uh, equity market uh, ups and downs. You can predict um, the, the cycles in bond markets. And the way you do that is essentially by focusing on monetary policy. Monetary policy is everything, essentially, because that will tell you um, 
some very key things. It'll tell you whether central banks want to support economies and and thus markets, whether they're trying to restrain economies and and markets, uh, the, the price of money, which is essentially what we're talking about here with monetary mm. policy, um, will affect the demand for equities. Because let's face it, uh, all financial assets compete for investor attention with cash. So if you're getting a better return on cash because monetary policy is is being tightened, that will reduce the demand for uh, risky assets, whether that's uh, equities or uh, bonds with a with a longer duration. Um, so how do you how do you make these predictions? Well, how do you uh, uh, look at monetary policy. The key is, as I alluded to earlier, is to look at uh, employment. Um, employment is, you know, the, the key feature of of any economy. That's what economies are trying to to do. Essentially, is to put as many people to work as possible. But there are times when they fail to do that, and that's in in recessions. These cycles of of unemployment they don't follow quite a, a neat sort of sine wave as the theory books might suggest, but you can absolutely discern patterns. You, you look at unemployment in the UK or the US, and, and there's definitely a pattern there. Uh, and that will, uh, that will inform, that will dictate monetary policy, and monetary policy will help you to, to understand what uh, financial assets are, are going to do. And if you can do that, you can obviously uh, build a, what, what would be called a tactical asset allocation framework uh, to, to add value over time. Very hard to add value in the short term. You have to accept that, uh, you know, these uh, these movements are predictable, not over one or two months, but over periods of one, two, three years. Uh, and that that's also key. Having followed your fund, I suppose this takes us so you saw monetary policy tightening and therefore... The, the logical step was to start thinking about reducing your equity allocation yep. because, obviously, as you said, um, equities will be competing with a higher cash rate and therefore doing as well. So you reduce equity exposure. Yep. Uh, so you're now down to about 37% equities. Is that about right in the growth fund? Well, it depends on which of our uh, funds, funds you're looking yep. at. Um, roughly speaking, we're, depending on whether there's a, a an income mandate for... Yep. Uh, the, the funds have to generate income. They've they've got less flexibility with that yeah. allocation, but we're uh, somewhere between uh, you know eight and ten percentage points underweight uh, equities uh, for, for for our funds. Um, now you know we we started reducing equities from a, a sort of a heavy overweight position quite a long time ago now, um, a, a year and a half or so ago, maybe a bit longer, and then. At the end of last year, we moved underweight, and since then we've continued to to move underweight, and we will continue to move even further underweight over the next uh, few months, in the hope that we will be the most underweight when when the bear market starts. Now, chances of us actually doing that are uh, are zero. Uh, it, ideally again it's about accepting certain things ideally we would know exactly when the bear market's going to start and we would move uh, over a matter of days from being very overweight to, to very underweight and of course you know that's just a, a total absurdity you're never going to get it right i mentioned earlier that you know my belief is that october was just a correction i could be wrong 
I could be wrong. Um, it could October could well have been the start of the next bear market. Now, the the, the way in which you build that uncertainty into portfolios is to is to start reducing early. Uh, and the analogy that I use, you probably heard me use it before, is you know you're driving a car, you're approaching a bend. When do you brake? Do you brake when you get to the bend? No. You brake well ahead of it. That is uh, the, the the conservative, the right <laughs> thing to do. And it's it's a very useful analogy with asset allocation. You've got to start preparing early on the basis that you could be wrong. No, absolutely. That makes sense. Um, so you reduced equities. What did you... Um what did you go into? Where did, where did the, um, I assume you're not sitting on 40% cash. No, 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 not, not yet. <laughs> not yet. And, and uh, we, we would never get to, uh, no, to no, that, to that level. Yeah. I'm being flippant. Yeah. Uh, of course. <laughs> um, um, so, uh, I, I suppose two things there. Firstly, which equities have we been reducing? And the second question is where, which is when you asked, which is where have we been putting those proceeds? If I might just consider the first question. No, first. of course. Yeah, please do. Um, so where do you reduce equities first? Well, you reduce equities first where the the business cycle is most advanced because that's where monetary policy is is getting tightened first. Um, and so that meant that we reduced US equities first. And in fact, we, uh, across all of our funds, we've moved to zero in the US uh, earlier this year, which, you know, was a very high conviction position you know we all know how uh, how big a portion the u.s is of 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 global indices uh and that position is now starting to work for us we uh secondly started to reduce the uk because that's where you've also got monetary policy that's being tightened elsewhere japan europe monetary policy is still very loose they haven't even increased interest rates there yet Uh, asia and em slightly different because there it's those areas are not so much about cycles they're more about structural long-term growth mm-hmm. so we don't tend to to think about business cycles for those areas quite as much and also the markets are more inefficient so there's greater opportunity in those markets to to add value through through stock picking through picking the right funds um so where have we been putting the proceeds well three three areas firstly uh into cash um secondly into some of our fixed income funds but because we think government bonds are horribly expensive you don't want duration risk duration risk Mm. is something you absolutely want to avoid at the moment um so what does that mean well if you don't want duration risk what what can you uh rely on well you can rely on credit risk um but you have to in other words buying uh corporate bonds particularly high yield bonds which are offering decent yields but you have to make sure you're investing uh, either in the funds where the, the manager has a very good credit analysis framework in other words they're going to avoid the bonds at default uh, or or indeed you yourself have got to have a good any credit. any favored funds in this space hopefully well, i'm not i won't not mention i won't mention funds but i what i will also uh uh say is the other the final area where we've been putting money into which is what we call specialist assets and, and these are essentially investment trusts that invest in uh, real estate. Uh, in other words, real estate investment trusts, um, uh, private equity, um, uh, infrastructure. Uh, and then the, the final area is what we call specialist financial, which is a 
particularly interesting area. Uh, so that includes uh, things like um, aircraft leasing, um, trusts that buy aircraft and then lease them to, to airlines. Um, these are generating a yields in the order of 8%, plus scope for some capital growth. Been a, a recent issue uh, of a fund, a launch of a fund that invests in music royalties. Oh, yes. What's the name of that fund? Hypnosis. Yes, yeah. Songs. Um, and, uh, and that's a really interesting opportunity there because, you know, we've seen the end of piracy, music piracy, uh, because of the rise of these streaming services. Um, uh, and that has presented a, a huge opportunity for the value of, of songs to, to, to increase. Um, but the point is that what you're looking for in this area is things that you can't get from equities or, or, or bonds. And, and, and what that means is you can get decent yields that bonds don't offer. Mm. You can get um, uh, some inflation protection, the income streams from uh, these trusts have some in inflation linkage. Uh, and you've also got more stability in relation to equity. Uh, obviously, earnings in equities go, goes up and down. You've got much more stability here. So really interesting area to, to invest in. Okay. You, uh, you mentioned yields. Um, we recently have been taking a bit of a, a look at where um, income comes from in portfolios. Um, and a lot of it still seems to come from equity income. Um, so what's your sort of balance there? You mentioned these eight percent yields, and yeah, yeah. Well, the UK is is an interesting one because um, uh, you know, although although we're looking at the stage of the cycle when um, uh, equities should be at some point starting to to perform poorly, mm. the starting point is is a little unusual. Um, yields are, are quite good in the UK. I mean, our uh, the yields on our uh, UK equity portfolios, which are predominantly mid-caps, are uh, well over five, approaching 6%. Mm, yeah. um, that represents fantastic value. Um, so it's a little bit of a tricky one, and, and all of that is because of the negative sentiment associated with, with Brexit. But that's OK. You can, you can balance the, the two competing forces of negative sentiment associated with Brexit against where we are in, in the cycle. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much for that, Peter. That was, uh, that was absolutely fascinating. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week, but you can uh, read more on asset allocation, the funds news, the feature on Smart Beta in this week's magazine, or on the website. Apart from that, have a good weekend.